You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Some would say we're all on a journey throughout life. We might be a career woman stuck in a ditch after our son died. We might be an architect turned carpenter, questioning the purpose of being laid off from a job that was stable but getting us nowhere. Or we might be an abbot, knowing we are where we are meant to be, but still hitting bumps every once in a while. Maybe we identify with two or all three or of these or none of them at all. My name is Britt Stack, and joining us this week is Father James Martin to speak with us about his first novel, The Abbey, a read that ultimately leaves us asking what is our path and where on the path are we. Father Martin is the editor-at-large of America Magazine and author of several books, including The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, Between Heaven and Mirth, and Jesus, a Pilgrimage. A member of the Catholic Society of Jesus, you might know them as the Jesuits, Father Martin was also the chaplain for the Colbert Report and assists at the Church of St. Ignatius Loyola in New York City. Welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be with you. Uh, well, let's just jump right on in. You've made the leap from nonfiction over to fiction. So, what inspired this book? Well, actually, the answer is pretty simple. Uh, a dream. Uh, I had a very vivid uh, dream that had a sort of fully formed story, uh, and I woke up and I thought, boy, that's a pretty good story. Uh, I wrote it down at four or five in the morning, as I recall, and then um, looked at it after I got up in the morning, you know, for good, at about six o'clock, I guess, and I thought, you know what, that's not such a bad story. It's it's the story of a, a woman whose uh, son has died three years before uh, the story starts, and um, down the street from her lives a handyman who works at a local monastery. And one night, he gives her a ride to the monastery. He gives her a ride uh, back from her work to home because uh, her car broke down. And he has to stop at the monastery because he left his cell phone there. And when she's in the monastery where her father used to volunteer when she was a little girl, but she's not particularly religious and hasn't been back, she sort of feels sorry. She has a sense of sorrow for the loss of her son. Uh, she misses her father, and she starts crying, and one of the monks comes out and sees her, and this begins this kind of relationship where they right. um, they talk with one another, and they, you know, she's kind of helped in her grief through a process of kind of healing and reconciliation. So it's the story of all three of them, but it's really her story uh, and kind mm-hmm. of how she finds her way uh, in the world after this terrible loss. How did it feel writing fiction after writing um what I guess you could call um, narratives or personal essays for so long? Yeah, that's a great question. I loved it. I, you know, when I started writing the book, you know, pretty much the next day I just wrote down some notes and I thought, well, I'm not a fiction writer. I can't, you know, I don't have, you know, pre- uh, sort of this pretense of being a fiction writer. I'm not, you know, <laughs> Rod Hansen or Alice McDermott or, you know, Cormac McCarthy or something like that. But I thought, well, I can tell a story. So I started to write it as if it were going to be just an ebook, just something simple online, maybe for a few people who might like it. But the more I liked it, the more I, uh, there's a Freudian slip, the more I uh, worked on it, the more I liked it. And I thought, this is fun. And once I got over the idea that I had to write, like, you know, Alice McDermott or Toni Morrison or right. someone like that, I thought, well, I can just write the way I write, which is pretty simple and kind of straightforward. I really fell in love with the characters the, the more the book went on and the more I got into it. And I sort of enjoyed 
giving them full lives, if that makes sense. I mean, really making yes. them full characters with, you know, problems and struggles and, and things like that. So I, I loved it. It's, it's a much freer and looser process than it is writing. Um, you know, as you say, a lot of my books are their spirituality, so it's nonfiction, it's sort of meditations on Jesus and the lives of the saints, those kinds of things, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, I, I, I enjoy that, but this was a lot looser and more fun. So the story introduces us to these three main characters that you've talked about, Father Paul, Mark, and Anne. They're each on very different paths. I mean, look at them. Mm-hmm. Anne, the career woman. You have uh, Mark, the carpenter at the uh, at the monastery. And then you have Father Paul, who kind of runs the whole monastery. Uh, that's what an abbot does. So I guess really um, when I was reading the book, uh, I'd say the main theme throughout the book is discovering and learning the path that God or which who whatever you believe in because if you look at it through multiple religions, finding your path, following your path is a common theme. So, discovering and learning this path uh, is kind of the and figuring out where you go from there uh, is really a big theme in this book. Um, so, how important is this path in anyone's life? Well, I think it's probably one of the most important things in anyone's life. Discovering your your path in life could mean a number of things. It could mean discovering what you're supposed to do, uh, what your sort of career vocation is, and, you know, do you want to be a carpenter or a lawyer or whatever, you know, as well as uh, kind of married life, single life, uh, parenthood, those kinds of things. So there are those kinds of paths. But I also think there's a deeper path, which is uh, the path uh, to becoming the kind of person that God wants you to be. You know, who, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, it's mm-hmm. a kind of tension between the person you already are, which is a beautiful creation of God. Every, all of us are beautiful creations of God. But also the person that God calls you to be. So who, who are you called to be? And the characters in the book, um, you know, struggle with those kinds of questions. And it's an interesting question you bring up because... You know, Anne really has a career. She's an accountant, and she's fairly she's very good at it, and she's fairly happy in that. But right. her question is, you know, how am I to be someone in the world who has lost her son? What does that mean? You know, and how can I relate to God? That's a question she asks herself later. Uh, Paul is actually, he's happy with who he is and what his vocation is, um, mm-hmm. you know, his career, which is a mon- is an abbot of a monastery. But it's Mark who is actually struggling with the career question. He doesn't know who he wants to be, and he doesn't know what he wants to do. He, he's lost his job as an architect. He feels like he's stuck as a handyman. He, he feels that it's beneath him. The, the, the abbot tells him it's not. So right. that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's what you're meant to do, but also who you're meant to be. So that path, mm-hmm. I think, is really probably one of the most important paths that we're on in our, our human lives. Right. Uh, so something that I have found interesting in this book as I read it, and I read a lot of different stuff, a lot of different nonfiction, a lot of different fiction, um, is just is how very open it is as far as the struggles of the different characters, but especially even the struggles of Father Paul. Uh, I guess that any of us... Uh, I go, there's a Catholic bookstore here that's run by, uh, not well, sisters technically, but most of the world knows, would just call them nuns. Um, and you, they, you don't, you see them and you think, oh, they're these religious, they're married to God as 
vernacular would say, um, we don't really think of them as human and with their own failings, but Father Paul has is really shown as a human in this. And I've, it's something that I've found so rare in all the different reading that I've done that concerns um, religious, be it nuns or brothers or priests. Well, I think you're right. I think there are a few books. There are a couple books that, that try to do that. Um, there's a writer named J.F. Powers from the 1950s and 1960s who wrote about priests, uh, you know, really uh, kind of priests in difficult mm-hmm. situations. But, you know, because there are fewer and fewer of us uh, clergy and members of religious orders, um, there are fewer and fewer opportunities for people to get to know them. And you're right, they, you know, you, you come upon them in fiction and they're very pasteboard characters. Uh, they're either uh, silly, that's usually the mm-hmm. stereotype, that they, they don't know what the hell they're doing in the world. <laughs> uh, you know, which is very much like Sister Act, you know, like the yes. movie, which I like, but, you know, these the nuns come across as like, they're kind of dopey, and oh my gosh, mm-hmm. they can drive a car, that kind of stuff. Uh, or they're mean, they're just cruel, uh, or they're uh, stupid and uh, mm-hmm. misguided and, uh, you know, narrow-minded. You know, two things. Number one, you know, I know obviously a lot of priests and brothers and sisters. You know, last night I was just at a benefit for a place called the Dorothy Bennett Mercy Center, uh, and it's in a poor part of New York. And it was run by a, it is run by a sister, a sister of mercy. Uh, you know, who works with the poor. And I thought, you know, here's someone who probably knows a lot more about quote unquote real life than a lot of people. Right. right? Uh, so that's that's the number the number one thing. And secondly. You know, we're human beings, so we have struggles and, and failings, and we lose our temper, and we, you know, wonder about things and struggle with our vocations like anybody does. So it's just as it's just as silly to kind of idealize any other life. You know, I might mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, oh, it must be so wonderful to be married. You know, you always have someone who's always uh, forgiving and always unconditionally loving you and always there for you. And, you know, a married couple would say, well, it is great, but you know, you're making it out to be too perfect. Uh, and that's, that's the case with a lot of priests and religious, or they make it sound like it's just a nightmare. Like, Oh my gosh, it must be terrible. If I said this to a married couple, like, Oh my gosh, it must be terribly yoked to the same person for your whole life. And (laughs) you know, look at the same person day in and day out, you know, so, so both lives and both states of life have kind of pluses and minuses. And that's what I try to bring out as you say, uh, in Father Paul's life, which is that he's a holy person, but, you know, he has his struggles and he's not perfect either. Right. Well, and uh, as such, um, talking about this, uh, there's also uh, brought up in your book something called spiritual direction, uh, mm-hmm. something uh, Father Paul meeting um, with Anne, kind of talking about that path that, uh, she is on. Can you kind of give us the short version, maybe a clearer version of what spiritual direction is? Sure. And funny enough, after we, after our conversation, I'm meeting with someone for a spiritual direction. Spiritual okay. direction basically helps people see where God is in their prayer and in their daily lives. And it's basically helping people to notice. So if a person comes in for spiritual direction, you would say, well, you know, where have you experienced God? Uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks or months. And, you know, what has your prayer been like? So it's not pastoral counseling, which is, you know, mainly to help people sort of problem solve and accompany right, people. Right. It's not psychology because you're not, I'm not a psychologist and it's not getting psychological underpinnings of, you know, what's, what's sort of driving people. 
but it's really looking at God, where God is in their life. And, and basically, people just need to be invited to notice that, because in our world today, it's not that people don't have experiences of God, it's that sometimes they're not invited to notice them and to speak, speak about them, and to really identify them as such. And that, that's what a spiritual director does, and mm-hmm. that's what Father Paul does for Anne uh, in the book. Right. It's it really is, sounds like, and I I'll, I'll be honest on the recording that I've had a couple spiritual directors myself. Oh, um, great. That uh, it's really something that a lot of people can benefit from, and I know I have uh, some really good friends uh, who are Southern Baptists per se, um, and even even if you look outside of Catholicism, because uh, spiritual direction is such a very Catholic thing, I have found, um, or at least least using that terminology. But even, uh, I have friends of different denominations who don't realize that that's exactly what they're doing, but it is kind of what they're doing. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, there's lots of different ways of doing it. We sometimes in the Catholic Church call what you're talking about a spiritual conversation. So that's really more of... Uh, you know, friend to friend, um, mm-hmm. where you're not kind of looking for, in a sense, direction. You know, it's not like the other person is sort of directing you. Um, and in fact, a lot of spiritual directors prefer that term, you know, spiritual companion. Um, direction is a little bit more, uh, you know, sort of focused on helping a person, uh, you know, find where God is. And there really is that sense of direction. So, In spiritual conversations, or as you say, in accountability conversations, it's more like let's share where God is and maybe we'll uh, sort of kind of comment on, you know, where we see God in the other person's life. In spiritual direction, there is a person who's trained, who is, you know, directing, meaning, yeah, I don't want to say in charge, but who's, you know, focused on saying to the person, okay, well, have you noticed this? Have you noticed that? I think you're overlooking this. Let's talk about that. It's a little bit more of a... Uh, of a kind of mentor sort of role, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, whereas the other one is a little bit more of a kind of conversation between, you know, two people, you know, and there's not there's not a mentor and a student. It's more of just kind of companions. But, you know, those things can kind of go in and out. I mean, it's sometimes during direction you feel like, you know, you're just having a, con- a spiritual conversation. Other times, like when I go to my director, my own spiritual director, I really want direction. I want, you know, I really need help, you know, basically. Right. Now, um, Kind of jumping uh, more onto this path of, uh, well, the, more on the line of questioning of paths and that sort of thing. Um, something that uh, you have uh, brought up not only in the Abbey very briefly, but in most of your other works, that I, actually I think every other uh, work of yours that I've read, uh, is the uh, spiritual exercises that St. Ignatius of Loyola kind of, well, didn't kind of, he did spell out. Um, Can you talk, uh, explain what the exercises are. If I understand correctly, it's kind of a very intense spiritual direction meets retreat, um, but it's usually done over a period of time. Uh, How exactly does it work? Sure. Well, the spiritual exercises are a a book uh, that map out a plan for essentially a four-week retreat, basically, and it's an invitation to enter into the life of Jesus Christ uh, through imaginative prayer. So what does that mean? It means that uh, St. Ignatius invites us to imagine ourselves in different scripture scenes. You know, what would it look like? What would it feel like? What would I hear? You know, what would I taste? And all those kinds of things. Uh, 
and you sort of picture yourself in the scene. And what happens is, you know, frequently people get insights and memories and desires and emotions and uh, feelings that that really are ways that God has of speaking to them, you know, through those scripture passages. So it's a kind of a gentle following of Jesus through his life. It's very powerful for people. And as you say, they can be done uh, several ways. The first way is to go away for an entire month and do it uh, in silence. You know, you do three or four prayer meditations every day, uh, and it's very intense, and you have, you have a spiritual director to help you out. Mm-hmm. The second way is what's called the spiritual exercises in daily life, where it's extended over many months, and you would do, you know, what you would do in a day in a retreat house, you would do, like, over a week. You know, you would pray maybe an hour a day, something like that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Ignatius wanted it to be flexible for people. But basically what happens is you have, and this is, you know, really with everyone who does it, at some point you have a very intense experience of connection or encounter with Jesus, with God, uh, in a way that is different than other kinds of prayer. So it's really at the heart of the spirit of, of the spirituality of Jesuits and of Jesuit colleagues. And it's a reminder that, you know, God can be at work in your prayer and in your imagination, and we can encounter God in our prayer in very profound ways. And you don't have to be a mystic to do this. You, you know, I've mean, all sorts of people have done the exercises. <laughs> you know, uh, even, uh, even though uh, she probably, whenever I think of mystics, I always think of uh, Teresa of Avila. Right. <laughs> so, right. And her, and, yeah, her she feast certainly day could just, have done them easily. <laughs> yeah. She, she uh, would have. Now, um, the Jesuits also have the examine, which is a daily thing. Um, I understand it just a very, very little bit. Um, I had a friend introduce it to me. Um, but it's something that, uh, from people I've talked to, has kind of been more people are using it, or maybe more people have always used it, and I've just been um, blind to it. But uh, talk about the examine. Yeah, more people are using it these days. The examine is basically a review of the day. It's a very short prayer. It's very I call it the easiest prayer uh, because you, you basically ask God uh, to help you look at your day and to see where God has been. Uh, and it really can help you to identify and notice God's presence in your life very quickly. So it's... Uh, there's five steps. The first step is starting with gratitude. Well, the first step is you start with, uh, you put yourself in God's presence, basically. So you remind yourself that it's not just you kind of, you know, zipping through your day and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of cataloging things. The second step is you, you call to mind the things you're grateful for. So Ignatius wanted us to start with gratitude. And that could be anything. That could be a phone call or, a, you know, a good meal at lunch or... Microphone you know, recording properly. Yeah, microphone recording well, right. <laughs> Be grateful for that. Um, and the idea is you, you call these things to mind, you savor them, and you thank God for them. And then the third step is you uh, review your day. So where did you see God? From from getting up in the morning to breakfast to the morning, mm-hmm. uh, through lunch, you know, afternoon, evening, going to bed, the whole thing. Where did you see God? Where was God present to you? Uh, next you ask for forgiveness for your sins or any any failings that you've done you know because we're all human beings basically we have we sort of look at that part of our lives that needs some work and then the final step is you ask god for the grace for the next day so the reason we do it is that we tend to be very uh sort of forward looking and we we're always looking to the next day we're always looking at the next day's problems the next day's worries (laughs) right (laughs) and what ignatius wants it to do is really slow down and just say where was god because often it's easier to see where god was 
than it is to see where God is. And then eventually you get into the habit of looking for God anyway, you know, during your, during your day. So the exam mm-hmm. is a great, simple and short way of getting your spiritual life jump-started. All right. Well, I kind of want to go back to the book now. Um, there's one particular um, storyline that I was really interested in, really jumped out at me when I was reading the book. Um, when Anne is talking to Brad, who is the friend of her dead son, um, about what happened to uh, her son isn't his fault because he, I, I guess he, if, to me reading it, he had carried some guilt from her son's yeah. death around. Yeah, he he was, uh, so Brad's uh, Anne's son, Anne's son was named Jeremiah was his best friend and they were going to the movies one night and were crossing a busy highway and Brad sort of egged him on and said, come on, don't be such a baby, cross the highway on his bike. And as he did, uh, Jeremiah was hit by a car. And so he feels this at 16, it's been three years since the accident. He feels this overwhelming sense Mm -hmm. of guilt. And you know, like a lot of 16 year old boys uh, or young men, I should say, uh, you know, he's fairly, uh, he struggles with how to articulate that and who to talk to about it. Uh, with and and just what to do with it and yeah and in that scene she she offers them some healing i'm, I'm curious what what stood out for you about that scene what was it that that struck you um i i guess that um with the i've really lately i've been really uh, meditating on mercy mm. um and what mercy means mm. and this uh really kind of jumped out to me as kind of an act of mercy toward from Anne toward Brad, uh, telling her telling him that this happened three years ago. It was not your fault. I there's nothing. There's no reason that you should be scared of me or scared of me, afraid of me, and what I might think of you that I might still blame you. Yeah, you know that's and, a really beautiful way of saying it. I, frankly, I've never thought of it that way. As her, her, you know, I just thought of it more as reconciliation. But you're right. It, that's a really beautiful insight. Thank you for that. It, it is her. Offering him mercy, uh, which is a big word these days in the Catholic Church. Pope Francis, I think it's the theme of his papacy, and he's just declared a year of mercy. I mean, that's all he talks about, which I think is great. But you're right, she she offers him, and I'm realizing it as I'm talking to you, of mercy, uh, because he is struggling. I mean, he really is, to use some Christian terminology, he's kind of on the cross. I mean, he's almost put himself mm-hmm. on the cross because he feels... He, he goes back to his parents the day after the um, accident and says it was my fault, and they tell him over and over again that it wasn't your fault, and he holds this great guilt, and she, probably the only one that can really speak to him about it, uh, you know, offers him, I don't want to give away how she does it, but she right. offers him this physical symbol of <laughs> forgiveness. And I think what's so beautiful is that she... Um, you know, she never harbored any anger at him. And also, I say in the book, or, you know, I, this is one of the things I liked about her character, she misses him. So, you know, her son, Jeremiah, has been dead for three years, and she misses uh, this boy, you know, who was a nice boy at age right. 13, um, named Brad. By the way, is named after a friend of mine who died early uh, <laughs> in life at age 21. Yeah. Um, and she misses him. She misses his presence in the house, and you know, that's a strange relationship because, you know, a 40-year-old woman can't tell some 16-year-old kid, oh, you know, I miss you, I love you. But she has a lot of love for him. And she, through a physical gesture that I, I don't want to give away, um, <laughs> offers him this healing and, uh, 
yeah, you're right. That's a really beautiful way of saying it. Thank you. That's very moving for me to hear. It is it is mercy that she is offering him physically. Okay. And actually, this is something that, uh, as the, the book has uh, come out where you can buy it uh, online and in bookstores now, uh, it's something that uh, I've seen uh, where you've posted on your Facebook page was talking about how uh, these, while this story was from a dream, was it kind of surreal because you mention in places that these are places that you're writing about that you actually know. This is the, the street and the monastery and so forth. Yeah, you know, I think that's the way it is in dreams. It's it's a it's kind of mashup of places we know and places that don't make sense. Sometimes, you know, you're in a dream and you say, "Well, it was in my house, but my house was somewhere else," or it was it was in this room, but this room was somewhere else." Uh, so the uh, street it takes place on is the street I grew up on, which I think is <laughs> something that's probably deeply embedded in yes. all of us. You know, that kind of childhood right. memory. So it was very easy to describe it. I thought, well, you know, I can certainly describe that. I lived there for you know sixteen, seventeen years. And then uh, the monastery is based on a monastery outside of Worcester, Massachusetts, named St. Joseph's Abbey, and because that's the monastery I know the best. And, you know, ironically, the, the mon- or not ironically, you know, the monastery in the book is in Philadelphia because that's where it takes place. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a kind of sort of confluence of those two places in my life. Uh, there, is no mon- there is no Trappist monastery outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and, of course, all these characters are based on fictional these are fictional characters, but even the characters are based on people that I know. They had faces in in the dream. Funny enough, uh, um, the character of Mark uh, was the actor Matthew McConaughey, which is funny. <laughs> yeah, who I do not know personally, but that's it's that kind one. of laid back vibe, uh, and that's one of the people I was picturing. He's also another, a few other people when I was writing about him, and you know, being able to picture these people and, and know them, but then also sort of create them and, and let them let them be who they are, I thought was a lot of fun. I really I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed spending time with the three of the characters. I, I in the end I loved them all. I thought they were all wonderful people. That's always I something that um, other authors that I uh, know and I've talked to and uh, I was fortunate to take classes from in college just the thing uh, that they always uh, laugh about. No matter if your character in your work of fiction is good or evil, in the end, you always end up loving them. Well, that's <laughs> as the author. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine so. It's, it's, it must be strange to write, you know, a, a book about some horrible person and then say, you know, I have to, I have to love them. But I remember an actor told me that once. I was working. I. I wrote a book called A Jesuit Off-Broadway, uh, yes. and I worked with a lot of different actors, and, and they all said that, that even if your character is evil, you have to love him and you have to understand him or her uh, in order to sort of play that person. Uh, but these guys, I mean, fortunately, the characters in my book were not evil. <laughs> right. Uh, they're not, I mean, they have, their, they have their faults and, you know, sometimes big faults, but I really love them, and I, I, they feel very real to me now. All right, so uh, we're wrapping up the uh, interview. Uh, we kind of always close our interviews here at Christian Humanist Podcast with uh, this question. 
What is next for you? Is there a book or a project or some very needed time off in the cards? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. I do need some time off. I've been pretty tired lately. But what's next for me professionally, besides my daily work at America Magazine here in New York, uh, is two books. I have a book coming out in February called Seven Last Words, which is on uh, Jesus's seven last sayings from the cross on Good Friday. That's a little book that's already mm-hmm. done. And then I'm working on a fun book, uh, which is the memoirs, fictional, of course, uh, of the Apostle Nathaniel. So I'm speaking in the voice of the Apostle Nathaniel, about whom we know almost nothing. I mean, he's in the Gospel of John. Right. He's not even in the other Gospels. <laughs> and uh, it's been fun. It's been really fun. And, and essentially, you know, I've done a lot of work on Jesus in my Jesus book, which was, you know, obviously nonfiction and story right. of uh, uh, you know Jesus's life mm-hmm. uh, through different lenses, but this helps me. To, this enables me to kind of fill in some of the gaps about what what we don't know about Jesus's life. So Nathaniel's going to tell us all the things that uh, he feels that should have been told the right way. He's pretty insistent about look, people got these <laughs> things wrong. Why aren't people talking about what he looked like? And that's crazy. And I'll tell you what he looked like. And why aren't they talking about his his, his young life? He talked about that all the time with us. You know, let's let's just get this down on paper. So it's a lot of fun. And, and I think the, um, right now the fun part is trying to find his voice. Like what's his voice like? Is it, is he very sophisticated? Is he down to earth? Is he sort of sarcastic a little bit? So it's been fun. So, so, and I'm also, I decided last night I'm going to give myself some time to do this and not rush and just, you know, just make it as good as <laughs> right. I can. Well, you have been very busy lately. I mean, you were, uh, when uh, Pope Francis visited the U.S., you were doing commentary for ABC News. And right. Do, do, if anyone follows your, you have a huge following on Facebook and Twitter, and if anyone keeps an eye on that, they know it's like you're a different place every minute of every day. <laughs> I know. It sometimes feels like that. Uh, so, and, you know, for, for writing, you really need to, you really need, and someone told me this recently. I've been cutting back on the number of speaking gigs and travel and stuff I was doing. I sort of felt a little guilty. And a friend of mine said, no, you need, you know, if you're a writer, or if you write, I'm not, I don't consider myself a writer. If you write, you need time. You need time, you need quiet time. You can't be sort of running all over the place. So, so yeah, so Nathaniel, I've been reading as much as I can about Nathaniel, which is fun because there's very little to read. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about anyone saying, oh, he didn't do that. I could say, you know, how do you know? He's only in the, he's only in one gospel. And part of me is wondering if I can write in somewhere, uh, you know, him saying, why aren't the other gospels talking about me? So we'll see. <laughs> uh, anything else that you would like to add? Well, no, I'd just like to say thanks. It's it's uh, it's great to talk to someone who's read the book. I really appreciated your insight about mercy. That's actually was very moving to hear because I, I didn't connect that word with that uh, that event in the book, but that is exactly what it is. And and funny enough, that's my favorite chapter uh, where she mm-hmm. she meets uh, the best friend of her her son who has died. And so I just wanted to say thanks for thanks for opening that up for me. It was really uh, helpful. Well, you are welcome. Uh, I feel it's strange that it, that it's uh, an insight an, an insight for you. So well, no, because you know I think oftentimes it happens over and over again. People point out things about books or about things that you've read that that you've never considered, and I I think that's really the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, uh, you know, helps us see things that 
you know, other thing other people wouldn't be able to see. So, so thanks. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up. We've been speaking with Father James Martin, author of The Abbey. A link to more information about purchasing this book, which has been out for about a week now. Uh, you can find that on our website uh, in the show notes. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Until next time, check us out online at christianhumanist.org. God bless.